Hi, I'm Rena Nainen, and this is Ask Lisa, the Psychology of Parenting podcast. It's a podcast to help parents better understand their kids. Dr. Lisa Demore, a psychologist with three decades of experience and the author of three New York Times best-selling parenting books, takes your questions. Both of us are moms ourselves, and we're eager to hear from you. So send us your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. And join our community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Ask Lisa Podcast. Episode 118, my daughter's cutting herself. What should I do? Well, people are gearing up for camps, possibly getting ready for summer plans. What are you, are you just going to chill out after this book tour? <laughs> There's going to be some serious chilling out. No, I um. I am very glad to say June is looking very quiet on my calendar, and I'm I'm ready. I've been on the road a lot. Um, it's been incredible, um, but I also really like sleeping in my own bed. You deserve it. Oh, you deserve it. You How about you, been. Rena? You're going to get a little time. You know, I I just like to have things up in the air always in my life. If you notice, <laughs> so no plans, no summer camps. In fact, actually, I have three summer camps planned, but that's it. That, that's the, that's it. that's all I have planned. Your schedule is wide open. Uh, my schedule is wide open for fun. Call me. Good. <laughs> you know I will. Um, yeah. So we got this letter, um, a pretty serious topic, and it's interesting because it's not something I thought about, but something you you understand fully. It's about cutting. I want to read this to you. Dear Dr. Lisa, my teen daughter went to an overnight camp for a week this past summer. There she met someone who had scratches on her leg. When my daughter inquired, the girl explained that she cuts her skin as a way to relieve stress. Since then, my daughter decided to try it and continues to sneak away with a sewing needle whenever she feels frustrated, usually after a major disagreement with myself or my husband. I asked her if she has thoughts about suicide or ending her life, and she says no. She just says it helps her feel better to cut herself. We've spoken with her about choosing safer ways to relieve her stress, and she seems to understand and says that she tries breathing and journaling, for example, but she feels like cutting her skin is the most relieving. She's seen the school counselor who gave us a couple of names of psychologists who can help outside of school. So I'm making calls to get an appointment. Until I find a psychologist, I'm writing for advice on how to approach this with her. She says that she understands that cutting isn't an answer, but can't guarantee that she will stop. Thank you for your empathetic, thoughtful advice. First off, I just don't understand why anybody would think hurting their skin and their body could relieve stress. Can you help me understand that? Yeah, and and cutting is something that can um, strike people as a strange or off-putting behavior. It's not altogether rare. Um, it's certainly something we see more in teenagers than at other times of life. But when we look at the research on this, um, as many as 17% or more teenagers have tried cutting at one point or another. So sometimes that's a kid who just, you know, scratches at themselves just to see what it's like and then never does it again. And sometimes it's kids who get more, um, you know, kind of involved with it. So um, I know, Rena, that when you hear about it, especially if it's, you know, not been part of your world, it can feel very strange. Mm. Um, but it is fundamentally an attempt at coping. And, and that, you know, that is so much acknowledged in this letter. And and the, you know, the teenage girl talks about it, that it's when she's distressed, it helps her cope. And how it helps kids cope, it can take a lot of different forms. You know, sometimes kids can feel um, that they're really angry 
And, and the way that they can discharge that anger is to turn it against themselves and to harm themselves and, and that that gets the anger out, so to speak. But of course, they're getting hurt in the process. Sometimes um, people who self-harm, and, and cutting's one form, people sometimes like scratch themselves or burn themselves or um, bruise themselves. I mean, it's not always you know what's described in this letter. Sometimes it's that they feel very, very numb. That that's something I've had um, people I've cared for report to me that they like that they feel sort of numb and disconnected from themselves, and and that hurt hurting themselves can actually um, bring them back into relationship with their body and and wow. give them a sense of sensation and feeling and and they can focus on the physical pain as a way of trying to you know focus on pain and feel things again. Um, so it can be that. The other, there's lots of reasons. I'm just giving a few. Sometimes it's people are punishing themselves, you know, that they feel angry with themselves or that they've done something wrong. And so they take it out on their own body. And so mm. there's lots of ways that it, um, lots of meanings it can have. And and I've only just touched on a few. And, and I always try to be very, um, you know, kind of open to the idea that what it means to one person is not going to be what it means to somebody else, that it, it serves a lot of purposes and it can be, um, it can feel effective mm -hmm. in serving those purposes. So if this daughter is cutting herself, do you worry that there could be a suicide risk, even though the parent has said she's asked and the child has said no? So of course, right? That's a, it's, I'm really glad the parent asked. It's a really critical question that we should ask anytime there's self-harm. And Rena, it's interesting. We actually do have a pretty developed line of work in my field around what we call NSSI, non-suicidal self-injury. Mm. Because I think early days, we always sort of lumped self-harm together with potential suicide risk. And we have a decent evidence that there that's not always the case, that there are people for whom self-harm is quite divorced from any thoughts of suicide or thinking about ending their life. But again, you know, the research is a guide here. And what the research tells us is if a person continues to self-harm over time, the chances that they will attempt suicide start to go up. So there's no perfect way to say that self-harm and suicide are not connected. And for any parent who becomes aware that they are caring for someone in their life, whether it's a teenager or someone else, where there's become a kind of routine use or relying on self-harm as a way to cope with emotions, the risk of suicide does rise as, as a person deepens their involvement with self-harm. Mm. Well, at this point, Lisa, I guess when you said you wanted to do this episode and we got this letter um, that was so beautiful, what, I guess, is it common? I mean, when you said 17%, it, that's not a low number. No. That's almost a fifth of the population. Yeah. And that's for teenagers. And that's, it may be more than that, right? Because again, we're, um, you know, people don't always tell us what's true mm. about this. Um, we also know that boys self-harm actually um, we think about at least a third of the population of teenagers who self-harm are boys. I think people tend to think about this being a white girl thing. We actually see it across all races, ethnicities, and we do see it across all genders. Um, we see it at higher rates for kids who are sexual and gender minorities, You know, where um, there's a lot of stressors mm -hmm. that are involved in that. So we do see it, um, and we do see it more prevalent in some populations than others. 
And I think there's value for parents knowing that it is not um, a completely unusual behavior because it's it does it can strike parents and especially it's your kid and their body and you know the idea that they would hurt themselves can be so distressing. So it's you know it's not a good thing that it's not rare, but it's also something I think that may help parents respond in ways that are more helpful to their kids if mm-hmm. they recognize that this is something that happens um, mm-hmm. sometimes with teenagers. What's your biggest concern now? You know, um, I'm also thinking about summer camps. Like, should parents be having conversations about cutting if your child doesn't know anything about it, isn't into it? Summer camp, you're sometimes exposed to other kids that are not in your normal social circle. That's really important to think through. You know, like, what do we get out in front of? And certainly I could see, you know, people listening to this episode and this did come up at camp and thinking, okay, should I get out in front of it? I am... My general rule has been around self-harm, not to do a whole lot of programming or conversation with kids about it. I I don't really feel there's a huge amount of value in um, getting out in front of it. But what I do think parents can do and should do with teenagers across the board at any point in the year is clarify the kinds of things that if they hear about them in a peer, an adult should know. And there's five things that I always encourage teenagers to like keep in those lists, you know, keep in mind. Number one is self-harm. So you can just say self-harm, right? You you don't you can sort of say it in a broad way. Like, you know, a kid who's not taking good care of themselves is a gentler way to say it. So you might say self-harm for kids who are in high school age. Whereas Rena, with your kids who are on the younger side, right? They're still late elementary and middle school. If you're sending them to camp and something gets your spidey sense up, you might say to your kids, you know, if you get there and you feel like there's a kid who's not taking good care of themselves, you should let an adult know. That is adequate for, I think, middle school and younger kids. Because obviously a kid who's scratching themselves with a needle or cutting their skin, you know, kids can put it together. This is a version of not taking good care of themselves, but you don't have to move into it. So that self-harm is on the list. Let me tell you the other four kids who are engaged in eating disordered behavior, kids who are depressed slash suicidal, kids who are um, engaging in very risky behavior. Like, you know, teenagers do risky things, but then there are teenagers who do things that are so risky that they scare other teenagers Mm. and kids who are in unsafe relationships. So a lot of that can wait until high school. But for parents who are wanting to be um, out ahead of this, I would have it be part of a broader conversation about the things that they may encounter or almost certainly will encounter in their peers that they don't need to feel personally responsible for. Mm. We're going to pause and take a quick break. I want to ask you on the other side of this break, I still can't understand really why do teens do this and how do parents respond? What's the best reaction to all of this? We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting. Did you know that most bedding is made with harsh chemicals, like from aldehyde, synthetic pesticides, and toxic dyes? Luckily, one company is changing this standard for good. Bullen Branch Sheets, which you know I love, uses the rarest 100% organic cotton that's traceable from family farm to your family home. I have had my Bullen Branch Sheets for a while now, and I love them. They feel like butter. In fact, I am so used to them now that when I travel, as I often do for work, I take my bowl and branch pillowcase with me and I put it on the pillow in the hotel room so I can enjoy that softness, at least on my face, even when I'm not sleeping in my own bed. 
Sleep better at night with the softest sheets from Bowl and Branch. Get 15% off your first order when you use the promo code ASKLISA at BowlandBranch.com. That's BowlandBranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com. Promo code ASKLISA. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I love doing laundry now because of EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze are these eco sheets that look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless, so you don't have that drippy goo from plastic jugs. EarthBreeze is really tough on stains, even odors. And if you've got teens, you know about those odors. Dermatologists tested, hypoallergenic, and also free of bleach, dyes, and parabens. Fragrance-free option is also there for anyone who wants it. So what EarthBreeze did was they got rid of the unnecessary chemicals for a formula that's kind to sensitive skin of all ages, and that includes babies. And I love that I just order online and the shipment comes right to my door when I need it. So right now, our listeners at Ask Lisa can receive 40% off of EarthBreeze. That's right, 40% off just by going to earthbreeze.com slash asklisa. That's earthbreeze.com slash Ask Lisa to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and get your 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash Ask Lisa. Welcome back to Ask Lisa, the psychology of parenting. We're talking about cutting. Um, Like I said at the beginning of this podcast, Lisa, I was kind of surprised you wanted to do an episode because I just don't know much about it, which is why I love our episodes because you're the expert with three decades of experience and you've seen it all. But can you just help me understand a little bit more, why do teens really self-harm? So when we look at the patterns that unfold around why kids do this, we do see some pretty distinct patterns. So the first is they are something that happens that makes them upset or uncomfortable. And, and you know, this letter writer talks about, you know, is when there's a disagreement in the family. So the the girl is agitated. So it always starts with distress, you know, that kids don't cut themselves or self-harm if they're not in distress. Then they do it and there are sort of aftermath effects that can actually be reinforcing, that can actually make them want to do it again. So one is they may feel relief or may they, they may no longer feel numb or um, you know they may feel you know sufficiently punished for whatever bad thing they felt they did. Another thing that can happen is they may um, get care, right? I mean, I, I sort of think about this dynamic unfolding in the home where the family has a fight and then the girl is very upset and then she goes and cuts herself and then she's injured, that really changes the dynamic, right? Of course, any loving parent is going to be attentive and concerned and worried about that. And that is the right thing to do, but it also may, you know, there's, we've got some research showing that that shift towards, you know, sort of more tender attention can actually be reinforcing, that it's, it's, mm. it feels good to have people be loving and attentive mm. with you. Which isn't to say parents shouldn't do it, but it is just thinking about the patterns that can help um, keep this going or that need to be addressed when we're trying to change it. The other thing I have seen um, in one young woman I cared for who would engage in cutting is that she would feel very, very numb. She would cut and the sensation was, you know, like gave her a sense of feeling more real, more, you know, alive is the language she would use. And then she would, she she kept it very, very secret. She didn't actually tell anyone she was doing it. She would then care for the wounds with like incredible um, diligence, that there was something for her really powerful about tending to herself, I think, in the way that she wishes her t- family would have tended to her, 
um, you know, she would clean them and she would um, put Neosporin on them and she would bind them up very well and they would heal really well. And I think for her, that became a very powerful reinforcing cycle of like, I'm in pain or I, I feel nothing. I then can release the pain through something physical. Then I can care for myself in the way I long to be cared for. And um, it can take on a life of its own, right? And that's what we work to help prevent. There's another line of research I just want to touch on here because it's really important. It's about um, body objectification. That one of the things, and this is maybe why we see more of this in girls, is that we see a range in terms of how much young people, and I'm sure people of older ages, but certainly we look at this in teenagers, view their body as an object, view their body as something that is really um, not entirely theirs. It's for other people's, you know, pleasure or other people's, you know, getting to look at or um, evaluate. And so we have some research showing that for young people who are very, very high on measures of body objectification, who tell us that they see their body as um, an object that is not entirely theirs, it doesn't feel integrated for them, their likelihood of, they're more likely to engage in cutting. Um, and then especially if they don't like their body, right? I mean, because there also can be this, like, I don't even like my body and then I'm going to harm my body. So again, um, what it means is so different person to person. And um, we do want to help people not engage in cutting because, of course, they're getting hurt in the process and we have ways that we approach it and think about it. But for me, there's such value and I'm so grateful for your willingness to take a deep dive into this because what we need is empathy, right? If we're going to take good care of people, we need empathy and really being um, attentive to the various reasons that this may be in some ways working for the people who choose to do it, I think helps us to really um, have the empathy on board that we need to then take very good care of them. Mm, yeah, empathy is just so important. But it, it sounds like um, it could be a vicious cycle if a parent is is wanting to care, obviously, for the wounds and, and smother a child with attention and affection, and the child sees how they're being rewarded. What is really the appropriate way for a parent to respond to cutting? That is right. That's the challenge because, um, of course, you want to attend to this. And then we do have some research showing that there, that attention can can feel good, which of course it does. So what I would say is if a parent is, um, you know, comes across this and obviously is concerned at first, do exactly what this parent did, check for suicidality and get on the call, get on, get, get yourself lined up with a clinician. Like, I, I think that those are both good ideas. Um, certainly the suicide, checking for suicide being imperative. I think the next thing I would say is Something along the lines of like, okay, if you know, if I'm the parent, I'm talking to my teenager, I think I'll say, look, you, we can talk about this. You can explain to me why you're doing this, but here's what I know. You're coping with something, right? You're doing this because it works for you. And I am all for you coping for distress. We need to find a way for you to cope that you're not getting hurt mm. and really put the emphasis there and put the attention there. Let us find a way for you to cope where you're not getting hurt. And then, so don't push it away, don't dismiss it, don't um, shame the child. Really settle in for a conversation about what are the other things when you are feeling, whatever you feel that causes you to cut, what else could help you feel better? Mm. Does therapy make sense? If your child is cutting, I mean, what should you do? This mom here said, 
the school gave her some psychologists. You always say the school sometimes is a good way to start if you want resources. Um, but is is therapy the right way? How do you tell what you need? So we do have therapies that really do work for non-suicidal self-injury. We've researched it. And um, there's a couple that we strongly recommend. Um, one we actually talked about in our episode. Actually, we talked about both of these in our episode on what kind of therapy is right for my kids. So one is dialectical behavioral therapy, which um, we talked about in that episode was developed for the treatment of borderline personality disorder, but has turned out to have a lot of uses. Um, Cutting is something that is not unusual in borderline personality disorder, but you can see cutting without that disorder. I think that's an important thing to emphasize. But what dialectical behavioral therapy does is that it helps with coping with distress. It helps people have strategies for managing upset feelings that do not involve harm to anyone. And and so um, it's very targeted. It's very appropriate for the treatment of cutting. And so I would say if a parent is feeling like the cutting is not, the kid is not able to stop it on their own, the kid is not able to switch gears into an adaptive form of coping, I would definitely consider DBT or cognitive behavioral therapy can also be helpful, but um, DBT is more targeted towards just this kind of difficulty with regulating emotions. How do you get into this kind of therapy? Is it hard? It, it, are there therapy deserts you know, across the country or where you can't get into it? What's your advice for people try, looking to find some of this help? Um, it, it can be hard, right? And, and certainly DBT is a specialized form, and so then you need special training in it. Um, the good news is it's got much, much more traction than it ever used to. Um, and often there are clinicians who are running DBT groups or, you know, that there's there's stuff available in communities. Pediatricians also can be very aware of the various um, clinicians in the community who can be of help for any given challenge. Um, and there's also some online DBT programs. Um, but again, I would see if your pediatrician can vet it for you because mm-hmm. the online universe, you know, you don't entirely know what you're getting. Mm-hmm. And there's some actually really good workbooks and, and we'll put them in the in the show notes about affect regulation. So um, even if a parent can't get in with a clinician right away, there are things that parents can do between, you know, when they discover that there's a problem and when they're able to get professional help. Um, and so we'll make those resources available as well. That's terrific. You know, a lot of these topics we bring up sometimes, it might not be your child, but it could be one of your child's friends or somebody in your community. And you mentioned empathy and the importance of that. It's one of the reasons I thought it was so important to talk about this episode. You might not think it's your child or whatever be, and maybe it unfortunately does end up being, but what do you think people need to keep in mind if they come across a child who is cutting? What's important to know? It's working for them. One way or another, it's working. People don't do things that don't work for them. And so the more that we can walk up to this from the standpoint of thinking, what purpose is this serving? How is this working well for you? Okay, what could we put in place that would work as well for you, but where you're not getting hurt? I think that's the key. And Rena, there's something else I want to bring up, and this is controversial in the field, but I, I want parents to be aware of this. Another thing that is sometimes offered is um, basically what we call a harm reduction technique. And this is where if a young person says, like, I have to have the sensation, like I have to feel something in order to get the emotional relief, um, 
There are some clinicians who will recommend, okay, get a rubber band and snap it against your wrist to get that stinging sensation of it hitting your wrist. Or even um, holding cubes of ice. You know, holding ice quickly becomes painful. Um, and, and it's actually one of the ways when we're in, in research settings wanting to measure people's pain response, we actually just have them put their hands and arms in very ice cold water because it just, it quickly gives a very painful sensation, but it's a safe thing to do. Mm. So there's a little, there's controversy. Some people feel like harm reduction can be problematic if a person tries it and it gives them no relief. They can then feel like nothing else is going to work but the cutting. So mm. it can have that potential downside. But I also know clinicians I really respect and trust who will say, look, if if you feel like breathing isn't working and journaling isn't working and you know it's going to take a while for us to get you with a therapist, if you could switch from cutting to just holding ice to get that painful sensation, then at least you're not getting hurt in the process. So I want parents to have that as a as an in-between measure, as a half-step option to consider while knowing that if it doesn't go well, sometimes kids can feel really frustrated that nothing's going to take the place mm-hmm. of cutting. You've explained it all so well and laid it out in this podcast, but I just, I just still don't get it. I just don't understand why any child would feel better hurting themselves by cutting. Um, I hear you, Rena. And and what I would say is, adolescent emotions are really powerful, and they can be very destabilizing for kids. And and I don't mean kids who are already suffering from a psychological diagnosis. I mean just teenagers that. Um, they can feel overwhelmed by what's going on around them. They can feel unmoored from themselves. And they can sometimes do something really impulsive. You know, they may have heard of cutting. They may have heard that, like, you know, it can give some relief. And it's easy enough for me to picture a young person who's never tried it before, having a really bad day, feeling incredibly frustrated and distressed, needing to get past it, like feeling like they've got a whole bunch of homework that they need to get to. And sort of randomly like giving it a try to see what happens. And in my experience, some kids, they're like, oh, I tried it and it freaked me out and I'm not doing that again. That happens. And I think for those kids, if they don't do it again, they're probably, I wouldn't be too worried, right? I would assume they sort of fixed it or solved it on their own. And other kids try it and they're like, oh, oh, that actually um brings a relief or focuses my pain in one place that I can now um, address it there and take care of it. And now I can get back to all the other stuff I mean to be doing. So it can have a very powerfully reinforcing quality and kids can sometimes stumble on that or they can um, seek it out more deliberately. But again, if it's not something that would ever be in the universe of what you would do. And I, and I think for a lot of us, that that is how we feel. Like like that, you know, that's not going to be someplace I would ever go. I think then all the more reason to really um, bear in mind that it makes a sense of its own, even though we always want to try to find other ways for people to cope. Because, Rena, in, in all my time practicing, I will tell you the two most toxic emotions I have ever come across um, are helplessness and shame. Um, people hate pe- feeling helpless, and I think sometimes that may be what is underlies the um, impulse to cut. Right, I'm taking control of the situation. I'm gonna get myself to a different place on my own. 
And there's a lot of shame around cutting. And shame um, never makes things better. Mm. So the more that we as loving adults who surround teenagers can steer clear of shame, especially around things like this, which can have a very powerful shaming valence to them, um, the more useful we'll be. Great advice. And again, pointing us into directions that we never sort of really understood. So thank you for that, Lisa. What do you have for us for Parenting to Go? You know, I mean, I think the key in this is not to be afraid of distress, not for the adults to be afraid, not for the young people to be afraid. You know that so much of what my most recent book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, is about is that distress is part of life. It is inevitable. We can't prevent it. We can't avoid it. What we can do is cope with it really, really effectively. And so if we think about cutting as a coping problem, not as a distress problem, then you know the options open up focusing on healthy coping, whether it's expressing emotions or taming emotions. And of course, if something is causing tremendous distress that can be changed, we would like to change that. But um, let's always keep our eye on the right topic. Distress is a done deal. It's part of life. It's part of being a teenager for sure. It's how kids cope and wanting them to cope in ways that bring relief but do no harm. Wow, a heavy topic, but what a great reminder about distress. And one of my favorite things about your book is reminding everyone that you don't always need to be up. In fact, it's not being up all the time that we need to be achieving. And working through and pushing through those tough moments is so important. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Lisa. And I want to just remind everyone next week, we're going to talk about how do you get your child to stop picking on the other sibling? An important topic parents all know for our and wide. Lisa, thank you. I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Ask Lisa podcast so you get the episodes just as soon as they drop. And send us your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. And now a word from our lawyers. The advice provided on this podcast does not constitute or serve as a substitute for professional psychological treatment, therapy, or other types of professional advice or intervention. If you have concerns about your child's well-being, consult a physician or mental health professional. If you're looking for additional resources, check out Lisa's website at drlisademore.com.